Hello, friends, and welcome to the PrepWell podcast. I'm your host, Phil Black. And if you have an 8th, ninth, or 10th grader with big aspirations, like the Ivy League or military service academies like West Point, ROTC, or athletic scholarships, boom, you've come to the right place. My specialty, my superpower, if you will, is preparing families for these competitive programs. I'll teach you what your child should do, when they should do it, and how you can help. So stick around and prepare to out-prepare. Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. Today, we're talking all about the cost of college. Sounds like a blast, I know. I will admit, this is a sensitive topic. Because people can be, one, reluctant to share their personal financial information for privacy reasons, or they feel like they have to make things up to save face, potentially, or they just prefer not to talk about it. And there are so many variables that come into play when it comes to each family's circumstances that it's pretty hard to make apples-to-apples comparisons. So many times this topic gets pushed aside. Well, today, I will try to bring some light to the topic as best I can. When it comes to paying for college, there are a lot of moving pieces and confusing terminology and rumors and stories that can make it very difficult to keep things straight. Unfortunately, we can't afford to put our heads in the sand and simply hope for the best. That is a poor strategy because in most cases, the decisions we make can and will impact our family's financial future in a significant way. And those decisions will come sooner than you think as we will see today. So how about we start learning? My goal in this episode is to help you figure out what matters when it comes to paying for college and when it matters, what you should focus on, not focus on, what you should worry about, get excited about, or at a minimum, what you should prepare for. Now, I'm going to do my best not to get too far deep into the weeds today because we could find ourselves going down a rabbit hole very quickly. And like most things related to college admissions, there aren't many universal truths or rules that apply to all families. Every family is unique. Each has its own mix of financial issues and family members and children and how they're spread out and what their ambitions are. And for this reason, I will attempt to stick to the high-level analysis so that everyone can get something from it. But I will also talk about real numbers, which are often left out of these discussions. And at some point, If you hear something that may affect you and your family in a significant way, you may want to do a deeper dive or reach out to me or call a college financial consultant. Either way, let me know and I can point you in the right direction. And remember, this podcast is by and large for parents with students in 8th, 9th, and 10th grade. I want to give you a heads up early so that when things really get crazy in a year or two, you're smarter about what's happening. And actually, if you have a sophomore in high school today, the very next calendar year, basically a few weeks from now, that is January of next year through December 31st of next year, will determine your financial aid eligibility for your high school sophomore when they apply to college in two years. I know, it's crazy, right? Who would have thought? Well, okay, I guess I've already gone deep into rabbit hole number one, I have to check myself here. That was a little bit technical. But actually, this is pretty important, not only for parents with sophomores, but for parents with freshmen as well. So I'm going to actually repeat this. When your child applies to college in their senior year, the college will ask you for your financial information 
that you'll put on a form called a FAFSA, and sometimes another form called the profile form. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. That financial information will determine how much, if any, need-based financial aid you might expect to get for your child in their first year of college. However, the period of time that they evaluate to determine this very important outcome is from January of your child's sophomore year to December 31st of their junior year. That is the calendar year that spans their sophomore and junior year. Let me repeat that. This is important. If finances is an important factor in your college choices and you are trying to do whatever you can to optimize your eligibility for need-based aid, you better understand the time period that colleges will be assessing. If you're off by a year because you weren't paying attention, it could be devastating financially. Now, I don't want to get too much further into the weeds here. Suffice it to say that if you have a sophomore in high school, your financial clock starts ticking on January 1st. In my case, I have two juniors, so my financial clock for that crucial calendar year is about to end in a few weeks, whereas yours is just beginning for those of you with sophomores. All right, let's, let's leave this topic for the time being. Maybe we'll come back to it. I think you get the general idea here. Timing is important. I think the best way to tackle the different financial scenarios is to divide families into three buckets. Bucket number one, bucket number two, and bucket number three. Bucket number one, you are rich. Money is not a problem. If this is the case, the good news is that you're rich. The bad news is that you will likely pay full freight for college. So in this case, how should you think about costs for your child's college experience? Or should you even bother thinking about it? And yes, we will address what rich means in the eyes of the college financial aid offices in a few minutes. Bucket number two, you're not rich, but you're not poor. You're in the messy middle. College expenses actually are something that could dramatically change your family's financial status or your retirement schedule and your child's future prospects. So what do you do? And finally, bucket number three, you're poor. And of course, I'm using the term poor for effect and not to make anyone feel bad. In fact, in comparison to many of the families that I work closely with, my family would probably fall into bucket number three. I'm a civil servant. I'm a firefighter. Those of us in bucket three don't necessarily make a lot of money, again, relatively speaking. And for this reason, theoretically, we could be eligible for some amount of need-based aid. How and when does that happen? These are the issues that we will touch on today. But first, is your child enrolled in Preppel Academy yet? If so, great. I hope both of you are getting a lot of value from our weekly lessons. If not, hello, what are you waiting for? When you enroll your child in Preppel Academy, your child, and you for that matter if you're interested, get the benefit of hearing from me every week right from an app on their phone. I teach and coach and mentor them as if they were my own child. So get them started on the right path right away. Go to preppelacademy.com and enroll your freshman or sophomore in the plan of their choice. Okay, back to the issue at hand. Let's go through each bucket and see where it takes us. If you're not sure what rich means in the context of college financial aid, you are not alone. It's a moving target. 
Nobody quite knows. Colleges don't often publish an income chart that would neatly put you into bucket one, two, or three. Some schools, on the other hand, are actually pretty explicit about it. Princeton comes to mind, for instance. They are very transparent about their cutoffs. If you make more than X thousand dollars a year, your discount will be Y percent. But most colleges aren't explicit. There are so many variables to consider that it's not worth it for them to publish anything so generic because it would probably raise more questions than it answers. Toward the end of this podcast, I will give some guidance on the general income ranges that correspond to each bucket. My guess is that most of us have a pretty good idea of what bucket we fall into, one, two, or three. But if we want to hear it from someone else or someone official, the best way to do it is by finding out what's called your EFC, your expected family contribution. Hopefully you've heard of this term before. The EFC is a number that represents the amount of money the federal government will expect your family to contribute for your child's first year of college. You can find your EFC by Googling EFC College Board and filling out the questionnaire. Believe me, I know I'm going to get some blowback from people who are Googling EFC as we speak and filling out the form and laughing out loud at what this number turns out to be. They expect me to pay what for one year of college? I don't want to get into that right now, how realistic or unrealistic this number is in this podcast. Let's save that for a future episode. I also don't want to get into whether or not the price tag is worth it. In other words, is, say, $85,000 a year worth it for today's college experience? That will be fodder for a podcast all by itself. Suffice it to say that this EFC number gives you a general idea, a starting point for what you'll be up against. Let me give you a concrete example. Let's say you fill out the EFC questionnaire and it spits out an EFC of $50,000. This means that the federal government believes that your family should be ready to contribute $50,000 toward your child's first year in college. So, if the cost of your child's college is $40,000 a year, an amount below your EFC, then you should not expect any need-based financial aid. Why? Because when you look at the numbers, you theoretically have enough to pay the whole bill. That college expects you to pay up to $50,000 yourself. Now, if the cost of your child's college is $80,000, on the other hand, then you should expect to contribute your $50,000 and then possibly be eligible for some type of financial aid package to make up for the $30,000 shortfall. This could come in the form of need-based financial aid, grants, loans, work-study, or some combination of these programs. Got it? Before we jump into the bucket analysis, let me just cover some basics about the cost of college today so we're all on the same page. If you're new to this world, you may have to reset your expectations of what college costs these days, and that's exactly why we're doing this. Let's start with the basics. College expenses are made up of primarily... Number one, tuition, and number two, room and board. Yes, there are other expenses like books and supplies and travel, several thousand dollars. Let's leave them out of the equation for right now. For example, if your child went to Columbia University in New York City, tuition would be about $65,000 a year and room and board about $25,000. 
$15,000 a year for a total of $80,000 a year, roughly. And yes, not every student has to live on campus, so room and board could be considered a variable cost. But for our purposes, let's just assume that your child wants to live on campus in the dorm with a meal plan. So how much do colleges cost these days? Let's start at the high end. Many small and mid-sized liberal arts colleges, including most of the Ivy League, which tend to be popular, cost upwards of $80,000 a year. Again, this is for tuition and room and board. Over four years, you can do the math, that's about $320,000. That may or may not come as a surprise to you. And mind you, it won't be long before these schools crack the $100,000 a year mark. So buckle up. Now let's talk about state schools. Typically, state schools will cost less than private schools, especially for students who live in that state. For instance, in California, tuition, room, and board at a UC school or a University of California school will cost about $32,000 for Californians and $60,000 for non-Californian out-of-staters. It's twice as expensive if you don't live in California. So the range you should be thinking about, in rough terms, is $30,000 a year for an in-state college, up to $80,000 a year for a private liberal arts school, or a state school in a state that you don't live in. And by the way, as you start looking more and more into this, you will notice, if you're like me, that there aren't that many schools in the middle. It seems like you're either paying $30,000 or $80,000, and not that much in between. And for context, even junior colleges will cost in the range of fifteen dollars to $20,000 per year. So as you can see, there are not a lot of places to hide. So to summarize, annual college expenses can range from $20,000 a year for junior colleges to $30,000 to $40,000 for in-state colleges to $70,000 to $80,000 a year for private liberal arts colleges or for out-of-staters in state schools. And yes, these numbers assume that you get no need-based aid and no merit-based aid, which may not be the case. But I wanted to start without layering on those other opportunities just to get everybody on the same page. Okay, you may have already known all of this, but I just wanted to lay out the parameters of where we are, what we're talking about. So if you haven't started looking into the cost these days, now you have a good foundation. Okay, now let's talk about the three buckets and how you might start to think about the costs associated in each one. I'll remind you, bucket number one, you're rich. You would be considered rich, for example, if your EFC turned out to be $120,000. If you're playing along at home, folks, that's a big number. That's well beyond what it would cost to go to the most expensive college in the country for one year. This means that colleges assume that you don't need any financial help from them or the federal government to pay for your child's first year of college. You've got it all under control. Now, whether that squares with reality is a different story. Only you know what that means for you and your actual financial situation. What matters is what the EFC says. So in this case, you should not expect any need-based financial aid from any colleges. Congratulations. So what are your options? Well, if you actually are rich and you don't care about what college costs because it won't impact you or your family or the bottom line or your future, then pay whatever the college asks for and be done with it. 
you're what we call a full freight payer. And by the way, colleges love you. If, even though you have plenty of money for college, you don't want to pay full freight for college, and you want to consider less expensive options for whatever reason, then refer to bucket number two, which we'll cover right now. Bucket number two, the algorithm says you're rich, but according to you, you are anything but rich. You could be in bucket number two, for example, if your EFC turns out to be, say, $80,000, which means that, according to the algorithm, you have $80,000 kicking around to pay for one year of college. And by the way, if nothing changes from year to year, you would be expected to maintain this level of contribution for four years or even five years. If you're in bucket number two, you're probably doing everything in your power right now to hold in your laughter because this EFC number, in your mind, hardly reflects the reality of your financial situation. You don't have $80,000 a year in cash after taxes sitting around burning a hole in your pocket, and you don't necessarily feel rich, and you actually do care about the cost of college, and paying full freight could materially affect your family's financial future. If this describes you, then here are some things to consider. Number one, instead of looking at the $80,000 a year schools, set your sights on the $35,000 a year schools, if that's more palatable financially. Number two, look for schools that aren't in the public eye, that aren't as popular or recognizable or prestigious, and don't have elite football teams that play on ESPN every Saturday. Because with popularity often comes cost. Number three, look for schools in the interior of the country and away from the coasts. East and West Coast schools tend to be more expensive. Number four, look for schools that are not near the beaches and not near the snowy mountains. Number five, look for schools outside the top 100 in the various rankings. Look for in-state school options. Look for lesser-known schools where your child would be a rock star, a big fish in a small pond. Consider ROTC scholarships, which offer free tuition to hundreds and hundreds of traditional colleges that could amount to hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings. Think about starting at a more affordable community college and then transferring to a four-year school. This is a great option for many students. Begin to look for government and private college loans. And lastly, understand that it is possible for your child to focus on schools that offer merit-based scholarships. These scholarships or discounts are offered to students with particularly strong performance in, say, academics. Now, I want to slow down a bit here to make sure I haven't lost anyone. The terminology here can get tricky. Remember, your EFC dictates how much need-based financial aid you will be eligible for, but that is completely different from merit-based financial aid. Merit-based aid refers to scholarships or discounts that some colleges offer students who have demonstrated excellence in academics or have some other attribute that a college wants or needs. For example, instead of paying $50,000 in tuition, your child may be offered a $25,000 merit scholarship that would reduce that tuition by half. The school is essentially offering your child a 50% discount off the full tuition. That sounds great, right? What's the catch? Well, a few things to consider. Number one, your child has to be very, very strong academically 
to win a merit-based scholarship. That stands to reason. So let's assume that that's the case for now, and it's going to vary with different schools. Number two, not every college offers merit-based scholarships, namely the most selective colleges. Ivy Leagues and near Ivy League schools don't often, Ivy Leagues don't ever, offer any type of merit-based awards. Why? Because nearly every applicant is already extremely competitive academically. They don't need to entice more students to apply by dangling scholarship money in front of them. They have more academically competitive applicants than they know what to do with. And three, which leads us to the colleges that do offer generous merit-based financial aid. It's not every college. Some offer more than others. Some don't offer any at all. You can Google colleges with most generous merit-based financial aid to see what colleges turn up. Typically, the colleges that appear on these lists are slightly less selective than the most selective colleges. They are the schools that are scratching and clawing their way up the rankings. And one way to move up the rankings, which has massive positive impact for them, is by showing high average SAT and ACT scores and high GPAs. Colleges want students who will spike their averages because it will help their effort to move up the rankings. To do this, they offer money to recruit very academic-minded students who might otherwise go to an Ivy League school to go to their school. It's worth it to them to pay for half of your tuition to get you to enroll and attend their school. They want your grades. They want your high SAT. They want your high ACT score, and they're willing to pay for it. The questions for you to ask yourself are, number one, does my child have the academics to land a big tuition discount scholarship? And two, will it be at a college that he or she actually wants to go to? And we'll leave further discussion of this to a future episode. And as an aside, the potential for your child to win a significant need-based scholarship of, say, $25,000 a year might give you good reason to invest money in an SAT or an ACT tutoring class to help your child do well enough to qualify for one of these discounts. Even if you spent $5,000 on SAT tutoring, if it happens to help your child get a $1,550 on the SAT, which helps them secure a $25,000 a year scholarship, you might want to consider that $5,000 investment. Okay, the last one. Bucket number three, you're not rich and your EFC shows it. You would be in bucket number three, for instance, if you had an EFC of, say, $5,000. This would mean that the college and the federal government is only expecting your family to come up with $5,000 for the expenses associated with the first year of college. Now, for colleges that cover 100% of students' financial need, which is not that many of them, this could mean that the college would cover the difference between the cost of attendance and your EFC. Let's put some numbers to work here. For instance, if Harvard costs $80,000 to attend and your EFC is only $5,000, then theoretically, Harvard since it meets 100% of need-based financial aid, would make up the shortfall of the $75,000 with a financial aid package that would, in most cases, not have to be paid back. Pretty sweet, right? Well, here are some other things to consider in this bucket three scenario. Number one, 
First, look for colleges that offer generous need-based financial aid. You can find this information on the website called College Data. About 60 schools claim to offer 100% of need-based financial aid. So it's not that common. And many of these schools are in the highly selective category because they have huge endowments that they can draw from. For example, even though Harvard costs $80,000 a year, because they have such a generous need-based financial aid policy of 100%, it actually might be cheaper to attend Harvard than a state school or some other school that doesn't offer 100% of need-based aid. When it comes to state schools, some will offer robust need-based aid packages, but not all. You need to check. Not every state commits the same amount of money toward need-based financial aid, even for in-state applicants. Also, schools can come up with different formulas for assessing what need means, especially when the school requires you to fill out that additional profile form. This would be in addition to the FAFSA form. With the profile form, colleges can tweak some of the criteria. Many schools treat home equity differently, for example. This could throw off your assumed need quite a bit, so investigate when the time comes. As you can see, with a low EFC, you have more options, particularly with schools that have generous need-based aid policies in place. So take advantage of this. Okay, so the best way to see where you might fit into one of these buckets or categories is to find out your EFC. I'm sure you're curious about what goes into figuring out that EFC. What numbers does the algorithm use? Do they count home equity? What about investable assets? What about qualified assets? What about 401ks and pensions and second homes? What about cases of divorce or inheritances or Coverdell accounts or 529 accounts? This is not the podcast where we will cover this in great detail. We could spend several podcasts walking through each of these different questions. For our purposes today... Let me give you some highlights of what levers will move the EFC needle. Number one, the biggest driver in your EFC is your current income, period. If you have high current income, there is nowhere to hide. You will likely end up with a high EFC and be expected to come up with a lot of money for college. That's the way it is. On the other hand, 401ks, Roths, IRAs, pensions, other qualified accounts typically have far less impact on your EFC. Sometimes no impact, depending on what form you're filling out and what school you're applying to. Your primary home, mortgage, equity, lines of credit can have from zero impact to moderate impact to a lot of impact, depending on the school you apply to. A second home will often work against your EFC, as you would probably imagine. If you have multiple children in college at the same time, that will likely help your EFC because they have to assume that you're going to split your resources between or among your children. And of course, the closer they're clustered together, the better. If you run your own business, it's hard to say what impact it will have on your EFC unless it kicks off a lot of current income to you, in which case it would probably not be that great. Now, you might be thinking, well, how much money is a lot of money? What type of money do I need to make to put me in bucket one, two, or three? This is a tough question. This is a tough number to come up with because there are so many different variables. I hesitate to throw numbers out because what is relevant for one person may not be relevant for another. But I'm going to do it anyway 
But please understand that these are rough ranges and may not apply to your particular situation. But here we go. Generally speaking, if your AGI, your adjusted gross income, is around $120,000, you should probably consider yourself at the very high end of bucket number three, or the poor group, as it relates to financial aid. That means that you can probably count on some level of need-based aid, depending on what other assets you hold and what types of schools you're applying to and what form you're filling out. If your AGI is below sixty dollars or $70,000 a year, you are deep into bucket three, or poor territory, as it were, as it relates to financial aid, of course. And if this is the case, there are schools out there who offer 100% need-based aid that will pay all of your child's college costs, even to that $80,000 a year school. Now, if your AGI falls between $120,000 and, say, $400,000 a year, you are probably somewhere in bucket number two. You will not likely be eligible for need-based aid. But you also may not feel overly comfortable paying $80,000 a year after taxes for a college bill. You would be in what we call the dead zone, where you're not poor enough to get need-based aid, but you're not rich enough for it not to matter to you. You're in financial aid purgatory, and that's a tough spot to be in. If your AGI is $500,000 and up, then you're likely in bucket one, and presumably you can handle almost any type of college expense. So the theory goes. Again, don't take these numbers or how I've characterized them as gospel. I simply wanted to give you, at some risk, an overall picture of how this process works and where you might fall on the spectrum. If you want to really sharpen the pencil on these calculations, I can point you in the right direction, but it's hard to do that with, with general advice on a podcast. I hope this review has given you some food for thought. I hope it's made you smarter about the issues and the terminology, and that ultimately it will better prepare you for some of the decisions you'll have to make in the next one, two, or three years. Okay, folks, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you found this episode valuable. If you did, please give us a quick review. Helps out a lot. If you know someone with a freshman or sophomore in high school, even an eighth grader, that might find this helpful, please share the episode with them. Sharing is caring. If you have questions, comments, or an idea for an episode, please reach out to me by email, DM me on Instagram, prepwell underscore academy, by blog, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Until next week, goodbye, good luck, and never stop preparing. This podcast is brought to you by PrepWell Academy. PrepWell Academy is my one-of-a-kind online mentoring program that delivers to your ninth or 10th grader a short, highly relevant video from me every week, every Sunday, in fact, where I give them a heads up about what they should be thinking about to stay ahead of the game. To get these valuable lessons into your child's hands, please head over to PrepWellAcademy.com and enroll your child today.